You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. My name is Alex Cox, and I'll be your host for this episode of the CBLDF podcast, which, as always, is brought to you by the support of listeners like yourself and the Gaiman Foundation. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast is part of our ongoing educational program. This episode features Brian Heater, who's a journalist, and a number of other things. We'll go into that right at the top of the interview. We talk about everything from the big news of 2014 to comics journalism to Charlie Hebdo to, oh my gosh, it goes on and on. There's some rambling in this. Uh, Brian and I are old friends, and I think he's one of the sharpest minds in the comic book industry, and it's always fun to pick his brain. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with journalist Brian Heater. Wake up, your wonderful dreams come true. I'm talking today with Brian Heater, who's a journalist, a podcaster, a uh, noted fan of comics, a festival programmer. What what else is on your CV, Brian? Uh, um, uh, uh, <laughs> I think that covers. I'm yeah. sad to say, I think that that covers it. Uh, and and now you're you're freelance. What where are you working on now? Uh, I'm working for a, a site called Laughing Squid, which is a, a pop culture site and. Uh, I, I, I do a, a weekly podcast for Boing Boing called RYL, which uh, deals pretty heavily in comics. We had Scott McCloud on last week and Roz Chest episode. When is this thing dropping, as they say in the business? A couple of weeks. Okay, so it will have been dropped several weeks ago. Sure. When, by the time you're listening to this. Uh, yeah, here, here, here and there, uh, uh, paper, I read for paper, I read for Publishers Weekly, um, yeah, all over the place. I'm, I'm, I'm cobbling together a living. What we're going to talk about today um, is we're going to look back at 2014. It's safe to say that everybody has waited to do their 2014 year in review until March. Um, so we can have a couple of months of thoughtfulness on it. Is that fair? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think people are pretty. I think you're uh, I think you're just justifying this incredibly I'm bladed episode. I think absolutely pretty, justifying pretty, pretty it. Quick pretty quick out of the game. I mean, it's always, it's always hard. It's always, you know, I find myself, it's like, I, you know, I, I, this was the first year in a long time to, to, to start on sort of a bit of a downer note. This was the first year in, in several where I had trouble putting together my list of best comics. Uh, Publishers Weekly was doing a, an editor survey and um, couldn't really, I didn't feel great about the, the, the 10 ones that I put together. I know that on our end, when January hit, it was difficult to think about 2014 at all because something yeah. horrible happened. Sure. And, that... and then another thing happened a couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we didn't there, – there was a lot of things where it was just hard to process anything, and yeah. 2014 just kind of vanished beyond that. So what uh, was on the top ten list that that you uh, that you did put together? Well, you know, I mentioned I mentioned, uh, I mentioned Ross Chast. Uh, did you read her book? I did. It's yeah. I, I've read everything she's ever done that I can get my hands on. She's a genius. Yeah, and, and this was this is obviously a very, very much a departure from from things she's done in the past. I mean, you know, she's best known as uh, a New Yorker car- cartoonist. Um, I think a really, really good quote from from the Comics Journal, I believe, uh, calling her the. I think it was like the first counter cultural. Oh no, the first the first subversive New Yorker cartoonist, which is kind of a funny thing to think about in 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 hindsight you know all these years later where um 
her stuff almost feels her stuff feels kind of main, mainstreamy now. Um, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things that um, I it's a hard book to sell to people. It's um, oh, you know, hilarious New Yorker cartoonist Roz Chess writes about having to put her parents into a home. Right. Uh, you know, really, really, really dark, really, really he- heavy subject matter. But um, you know, she she's just so charming. She's great. I, yeah. I I mean, I would never consider it like darker or heavy, even though the content yeah. is. I mean, she has such a deft touch. It's like I, I found it charming anyway. I found it. I I don't know. I love her. I'm a huge fan. I I think I'm I'm really glad that this has been like a big year for her. Yeah, I mean, she, she's definitely somebody who's been kicking around since, I guess, the, the, the late 70s. Um, you know, it, it's hard. I, I, it, it's probably hard to get recognition when you're part of a machine like The New Yorker. And that's that's where most people know her from. And, and um, you know, the, the majority of her books up till this point have just been really a, a collection of those cartoons. So it's nice to see something long form from her. And, you know, I think she she did a, a really, a really fantastic job pulling from something in in real life, something that like that, that I think you know the vast majority of people would have had to be had to have been a lot more removed from to actually write about. Well, what I also found the reaction to her book is that there was no reaction in that it really in the comics press it seems to be like unless it's a genre comic you're not going to get that much press in in the world of comics. Um, she got a ton of press outside of comics, which is terrific. But yeah. there's no telling how many lists I saw that were specifically like. You know the 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 best works by women in comics this year, where she was nowhere to be found, which is insane to me. Yeah, it's 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 hard. I mean, it's hard to to, to try to marry those those two worlds into the two a single list. I mean, you know, you'll notice a theme, and and Alex, you know me well enough to know that there aren't going to be any superhero books on my list just because that's not something I read. Um, comics is such a a, a broad. It, it's like the it's like the Golden Globes conversation. You know, the the fact that. It makes a lot more sense that, that they have a all these categories for comedies and all these categories for dramas because they're two intensely different things. To try to, to to try to shove all those into the same list, to try to shove you know Squirrel Girl and this Ross Chas book on the onto the same list, just based on the fact that they're they're in the same medium, um, you're, you're going to be shoehorning something in. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's just a a discussion of like labeling the list because a lot of people particularly in in the genre comics press tend to drop everything into the broad bucket of comics when yeah. it's just superheroes and sci-fi yeah yeah that's fair i mean i i, th- I think too i mean this is something that, that i mean I, this is something that's driven me crazy forever yeah and but i but again i think it's a little it, it's it's a little bit broader than that and this is a conversation that i've been having a lot lately it's nice though i mean the, the one the one thing i'll say is that it's nice uh seeing more mainstream publications not necessarily making that delineation anymore between books and comics to see these things wind up on mainstream lists without you know any any sort of separation to see uh, a book like like Roz's book just be on the best books of the year and not necessarily the best comics of the year yeah i agree paul pope's battling boy was terrific i loved it um it, it I... was everything that i've been wanting a superhero comic to be uh from the standpoint of like actually actually being not only for children but being an original creator creation for children i thought it was absolutely spectacular i thought it was just poignant enough to to tug at you a little but not enough to be you know like a 
uh, melodrama. I thought it was awesome. I thought everything. I mean, not to mention the action and the yeah. everything about it. The, the the concept of it is great. Uh, Hospital Suite was great, obviously. Porcelino. Sure. Um, this one summer. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I picked a lot of books for younger readers. I don't know. I don't know why that happened. I guess it was just a book. Good, good, uh, good year for younger readers. But I kept kept coming around to that. I, you know, it was good. It was good to see Box Brown finally put out a significant work. Sure. Been uh, been following him for years, and um, I really like. <laughs> I'm really rooting for him to keep just putting out wrestling biographies. I don't think that's going to happen, but I feel like that would be a pretty, pretty solid career path for him. And, and I would certainly read everyone. Uh, I think that's about, I think that, that's my top 10. I, have you read, have you read the sculptor yet? I have not. I have not had oh a chance God. to pick it up. I mean, as of this recording, it came out like what, six days ago or something. Uh, or even if that, okay. Yeah. It came out on third. Um, oh my God. It's so good. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I didn't, I you know I I really read expectations with that book. Um, I don't know. Well, if they who were knew what to expect? It's higher, been yeah. I don't know if they were so high or long. low. Yeah. Um, but especially you know just just having, you know, like everybody else in the world being mostly familiar with uh, Scott McCloud's work through, uh, through all the the understanding comics books. Um, you know he did he did Zot and Zot Zot was was good, but certainly it wasn't a great work of art. And then, you know, and then he spends like the intervening 15 years working on all of these books about, uh, about comics crap. So he took his damn time on this one. I mean, this was certainly a case where the fact that it took him, I think like five years to create in some sense, it's an incredibly, uh, it's an incredibly basic premise. It's, it's just a, a pretty, pretty simple Faustian deal about a, um, an artist an artist struggling in his twenties, you know, uh, makes a Faustian deal with death to get these superhero powers and um, becomes a superhero of sorts who can just kind of sculpt sculpt the world around him. Um, I mean, you know, obviously the, the storytelling is immaculate and it's it's maybe the best paced comic that I've I've ever read. Um, when I when I first, I, again, I didn't really know what my expectations were going into it. Um, they were pretty substantially lowered when I started reading it because it seemed like a very simple book albeit one that took like 500 pages to tell but there's something there's just something in it that I need to go back and reread it um, there's something in it that just snaps at one point and it just turns into a, a really good book mm-hmm. and then by the time you finish the final page you realize that it's actually a great book right uh, it, everything just clicks together and it in a super magical way by the end of that book so i you know it, it's i mean it's only february but it's it's easily the book to beat for 2014 and i think there's a pretty based on the fact that it's the best book that i've read in the last three or four years um it's probably gonna be the best best book of 2015 it's it's definitely a huge deal and it's definitely going to continue to be that way for a couple of months i mean i think the press rollout only has only just started um but I mean, it's going to be one of those books that people have to talk about because it's he's such an important creator, despite the fact, like you said, that he hasn't had a huge, you know, back yeah. backlist to date. It's really it's really funny to to have a conversation with him about it because I uh, I, I had mentioned to the his publicist I think keep talking about for second books today I don't know I guess they're on a roll I I, I was talking to his, his publicist um, Gina about it. I, I had gotten the book as galley, so I was reading it on a uh, on a tablet, and she said, "Don't." She said, "Don't talk to him about the fact that you read it on a tablet." He's, you know, he's 
he's very specific that this is something that needs to be printed. Uh, he really wanted to be a book. It was created to be in book form, um, which is kind of, I guess, semi-ironic from somebody who's been such a proponent of, of web comics. But I, I think that he's just really wanted to make something substantial, you know, something that you could like look at and hold in your hands. But I sort of got into an argument with him over the fact that I think it also plays really well on a tablet um in an interesting way in the way in a way that it's paced out in the end i think it actually uh, reads really well on tablet and he just wouldn't have it that's a good segue to talk about tablets and i mean you're a tech guy how, how much of your reading do you do on tablets uh at, at this point at this point my prose reading i, I do probably like 95 percent of my prose reading on a on a kindle sure me too um as for comics the only comics that i read on a tablet are comics that are sent to me for review because the paper version isn't out yet sure uh, they're, it's really tedious. I mean, his his point his point on this it, it makes sense. It makes sense to some degree, and I don't think that I don't think it really ruins the book as much as he seems to think it does. But you don't get get any any uh, splash pages, right? So you know you're just reading a page at a time. And you don't really get to see the the spread or anything like that. Um, in a book like this, I don't think it ruins it as much. Images as, like, don't unfold in a in a yeah. particular way. But yeah, I I, I find it I, I do find it a little tedious because nothing. Nothing at this point is really formatted specifically for the tablet, and for very good reason, because people just aren't reading on the tablets. Um, Comixology does a pretty good job with it. It's been a while since I've used it, but I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty nice app, the way they do panel-to-panel reading and things like that. Um, it's the closest that I've seen something coming to being a motion comic without being a terrible motion comic. I, I have enjoyed the... the- the comics that are specifically designed for uh for the tablets uh, i forget what they're called i think each company has a different name for them but the ones that kind of you know they have the gradual fades and they have the uh, i don't even know how to describe them do you know yeah. what the terms are that they've used uh it's just sort of like slight like animations like segues between yeah them. but there's marvel has a name for them yeah um I've enjoyed those quite a bit. Um, part of that is that they've put some really talented people on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Batman 1966, that comic for a long time was released first for the iPad format or for the tablet format. I didn't, re- you know, I, I didn't read it. And my, my main contention with, with a lot of these is that it feels like they're just kind of a novelty at this point. I mean, did you feel like that actually added something to the storytelling? Uh, in some cases, in some cases, it just happened to be how it was available. Yeah. So I was happy to read it there, and it was sized for the tablet screen. Um, and, you know, they had pretty talented people working on it, so they knew how to tell a story in that size and on that on that screen, you know what I mean? I, I didn't think it was gimmicky on that end. This is a, a conversation that I keep getting in a lot around, uh, around the podcasting format. Um, this is something that I've run into. I mean, if you look at the, the vast majority of really popular podcasts right now, they're all like NPR shows or BBC shows or other shows that are uh, meant for broadcast on the radio that have really been um, taken and, and turned into a different format. This is something this is something that happens every time a new medium comes along for obvious reasons. You know, you you retain all of the all, all of the formatting, all of the tropes from the past medium and just kind of like shoehorn them into the new one. Um, and you know, web comics are it's an idea that's been around for a long time. Web comics have been around for, for a really long time. They've been popular for a really long time, but um, very few of them 
are things that couldn't also exist in print in the exact same way. I, I think the problem that a lot of people run into is, um, you know, obviously just because you're an artist doesn't mean you're also a a, a coder. You know, it doesn't, sure. doesn't mean that you can also um, really do sort of clever clever things around it. So, I, I, you know, I think... Well, it doesn't even one... need to be clever. It just needs well, to you know like, utilized the medium in a new way sure but 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 most of that aside, again aside from formatting aside from scrolling most of that entails some sort of knowledge of, of code yeah yeah that's true um and, and until and i think until somebody's proven that there's there there's enough money into it i don't think we're going to see a lot of partnerships but that's something that's something that i would like to see um this is a a, a conversation i was having recently that i would i would really like to see you know all these like startup app developers who are trying to make a name for themselves partnering with all of these artists and really making cool things around them making um making like apps around comics and comics around apps and things that can only really uh you know think th- 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 comics that only really work in that format comics that won't translate back into print um and I, it's it's shocking to me that it's taken so long everything else is moving so quickly you know <laughs> you know it's it's funny like we're seeing we're seeing all of these, you know, if I like look over at my bookshelf at all these giant, giant oversized books, we're, we're seeing a reaction in print to digital. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing, we're seeing people try to do interesting things in print that have never been done before. You know, I've got like, I've got my copy of building stories over here. Um, we're seeing the reaction, you know, to the fact that people put print off as something that that is relatively limited and we're seeing them them try new formats and things like that but it's not really a reaction to a very active movement in comics it's a reaction to uh it's like a a a precautionary measure to the assumption that at some point digital comics are going to be able to do things that print comics can't do yeah well i mean i think it's equivalent to imax 3d movies being a reaction to people watching stuff on their phones which is kind of a presumptuous thing that a lot of people have said. I don't know that that's really the case, but it's, I think people, when they see a new, a new way to deliver something that they see is uh, diluted or, or truncated or whatever, they want to go the opposite direction and do something huge, you know, CinemaScope and, and VistaVision were all a reaction to television. Well, three, I mean, 3d movies are probably a better example of IMAX because, you know, really, I mean, they, those, those resurged once again, you know, like ten years ago. Or so, and those were very much a reaction to the fact that they just weren't getting butts in, in the seats of theaters. Yeah. Um, but but you know you're you're right. I mean you know we saw we saw movies that were made to be two D movies formatted to be three D movies so that they could sell tickets, more tickets, or at least they, they could sell tickets for an inflated price. But the 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 issue, like one of the issues with making comics a little bit more multimedia is. Um, the format has always defined what comics are. So if you like motion comics, I hate even saying the word motion comics, but motion comics feel like cheap animation. You know, I, I guess I'm not enough of a creative type. It's hard to me know for me to know. I'm, I've certainly seen some web comics that have done a, a pretty pretty decent example of this without feeling too gimmicky. But um, I was I was talking to. Uh, to, to Heidi McDonald last week about this when we were discussing motion comics and multimedia and um, I I think that the first place that real multimedia comics are going to be really successful is, is for younger readers um, 
you know, I've been reviewing tablets for years, and one of the things that they've done a really good job of doing is is kids' books, because you know, like, I, again, like there's only so much you can do with a prose book. Um, there are some nice features, some contextual information you can offer up, and things like that. But you can't really you can't really animate black and white text on a page. It's not going to look great, but you know, you you can animate a kids' book. You can you can you can make them interactive. You can add sounds. You can add storytelling features and things like that. And that's gonna that's gonna engage the child. It's gonna get the child to to read a little bit more. So I think that as we're seeing this first generation of of, of kids who really grew up grew up reading children's books on tablets, the next logical step is comics. So it makes sense that that is really, I think, gonna be the, the sort of the first realm where we're gonna see successful multimedia comics existing but on the on the topic to, to do a total aside but on the topic of semantics this is something that i sort of want to get your i want to get your opinion about i was watching um i was watching msnbc the other day uh-huh because that's what i watch when i'm on the treadmill in the morning and they had a uh, a new yorker editor on i don't know who it was it wasn't bob mankoff and it wasn't francois but um he, he was on and he was talking about the um uh, you know about the, the the recent shootings, not the not the old recent shootings, but the more recent recent shootings, um, and you know it was a, it was a super interesting conversation about um, about freedom of speech and things like that. And then at the end, like just I think it was Morning Joe, and and maybe this was just a very like Morning Joe thing. But at the end, just as a, as an aside, um, the whoever the host was comes on and says, "Oh, and we shouldn't we, we shouldn't refer to them as cartoons, right?" And the editor just nodded his head. <laughs> and like, like I don't like our nodded that, his head. Yes, we shouldn't. Or uh, yeah, 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 nodded yes, his head. That's a stupid question. I don't know. For are we back? Are we back having that discussion again? Is my question is like, you know, are we back like trying to prove how that you know how important these things are? So we're not calling them cartoons anymore. Have we have we circled back around to that? There seemed to be a nice little period in there where everybody was fine calling them cartoons and comics. People have been trying to figure out a new term for comics since the '60s. At this point, but that's but I mean that that you know that does feed back into the original conversation, which is I guess why why do we need that? And and you know this this probably plays into a little bit about you know what you guys have been focused on. But is it um, you know Charlie Hebdo in amongst all the really horrific things that have happened around this? Is there a conversation happening about about the power of imagery, about the, the, the power of, of the medium. No. You know. And I'm okay. glad you brought that up because this is a completely new segue and I wanted to talk about this with you. One of the things that I have noticed is that there was no discussion after the Charlie Hebdo murders. There was no conversation at all about the power of, of imagery versus the written word and the power of, of visual art. The conversation immediately became these guys were racists and what they were doing was hate crime. And I think that the nature of the internet to go directly to that kind of outrage versus talking about the formalism or talking about the more subtle aspects really drowned out the idea that these guys were coming from a history of satirical cartooning and, you know, culturally it's different. And there's a whole conversation to be had about what they were doing and why it was important and why it had such an effect. And it just got drowned out by so many people think pieces and so many tweets and so much just saying that these guys were racists well 
a horrible thing happened. Mm -hmm. You know, people lost their lives who, who shouldn't have lost their lives. There, there, there should, you know, there should be outrage. There should be people who are freaked out about it. I mean, that should, you know, that that, that that's a pretty natural human reaction to, to, to have. I. This is, I mean, this is this this is something. I guess this is something that I can appreciate. Um, where wherein I don't know at what point. Uh, how early on into that news cycle do you start having the conversation about like again how powerful images can be and um, what they mean to this culture like is that do you come out of the gate I mean no I mean you know the first first thing you do is cover like there's a hostage standoff happening like, well yeah the, the first aspect happening. is the hard yeah. news the second aspect is the think piece where you say why did what these guys draw upset people so much and then it goes into exactly what you're talking about yeah but, Brian, you're a thoughtful person and a good journalist. Part of it is narcissism, where people see something and their initial reaction is the most important thing. Not that somebody got murdered, but just this is how I immediately react to it, and that's the most important thing. Once that sways the conversation, um, it's really hard to get back from it. So much of what you have to say after that point is like, well, no, it wasn't racist. Or, no, these guys actually were virulently anti-racist. These guys were fighting that. Um, so you spend so much time justifying what they did as opposed to talking about why why they did. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, it was really hard for people to wrap, to wrap their head around. It, it really was. And, it, and it, was, it was, from our perspective, it was strange to us that it was hard for the mainstream media to wrap its head around the fact that in other countries, comics are regarded differently. Well, and also, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around the fact that a cartoonist could be as non-xenophobic as you can get and still draw what we would characterize as a racial caricature. And for that not to be the point of the cartoon, for the actual surface of the cartoon not to be the message. Um, I don't know where we lost the way with that. <laughs> I don't know where. I, I mean, it was upsetting to me because a lot of people were just arguing like you shouldn't be drawing offensive pictures. And there, there were a couple of, you know, they knew what they were getting into yeah. articles, which is terrifying. It, 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 it there's i mean it, it's not here I mean, here's what else like, i i get why i get why it's such a hard conversation to have this was again this interview i just saw with the the new yorker cartoonist where they were just going like they were going around in circles and it was an argument of like oh but you at the new yorker wouldn't publish this so therefore you have the taste to do this or or you have the foresight not to do this so shouldn't everybody else have the foresight to do it? Like, oh, yeah, it should be your First Amendment right, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should do it. Right. Or, or aren't you culpable? Be yeah, because you knew that it was going to happen. I mean, it's it, – no, I mean, it's – there are a lot of shades to this. And it's not – it's – you know, for somebody for somebody like you, for somebody who's really in the business of, of defending First Amendment rights and particularly as it pertains to comic, book, I, comic books, I think it's – a much easier conversation for you to have because you've been having the conversation for for so long. But I, I, I understand why it's a, a difficult conversation. I understand why it's a difficult conversation from a standpoint of like, sure, I mean, yeah, did, the, did those people who drew that comic, particularly um, in light of the fact that there had been uh, 
huge controversy over Muhammad comics, um, you know, like like five or six or seven years before. Did they know that that was a risk? I mean, absolutely. Did did they know that was a risk? I mean, should they have weighed that into whether or not they did, did made the comic? Well, I'm sure they did weigh that into whether whether or not they made the comic. I mean, I'm sure that did play into that. So there's no there, there's no easy conversation to have around this. Uh, there's not. But I think it makes it worse when people immediately go to these guys were racists because then you find yourself defending perceived racism as opposed to having an extended and important conversation about what they were actually doing. I mean, you know, maybe maybe the best thing about comics is also one of its biggest detriments is is that it is such an immediately powerful medium. And maybe that's why. Um, you know, comics that do have a little, a little bit of something brewing under the surface will never really break through to the mainstream because maybe, you know, maybe people aren't willing to really to sit with them and 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 dig for them. I mean, it's really, it's really easy to just read a comic as at, on its surface. It's really just, e- it's easy to just read, 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 yeah, read the pictures. And I have a deep affection and and reverence in my heart for satire. You know, I mean, satire as a concept is huge, but you know what I mean. I mean, the idea of like really vicious social satire is something that I think is not only important, but it's gotten me personally through a lot in life. And I hate the idea that you can't use certain imagery. That's all part of the language of what they're trying to do and the point they're trying to make. And sometimes the points are made in a very blunt way. Um, and in Charlie Hebdo, that tended to be the case more than not. Um, I mean, I've I've read a lot of those at this point, and 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 even its predecessor, um, Hari Kiri, was mortifying, but it was like National Lampoon; it was making a larger point. Yeah, I mean, may, you know, maybe 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 we've become a little complacent because I think that we're used to, and by we I mean you know people who would consider themselves leftists or progressive, but we're used to, um, really you know really good and all really well done satire playing into our belief system. You know, it's it's made us a little bit lazy because you know the vast majority of the really great satirists over time have been have been left leaning. So so like you know. I, here's the thing right i mean you know we 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 can go around in circles and argue that they're not having these sorts of conversations but just the way that people have to exist in the world i mean there are certain there are a certain number of news stories that come out every day i mean i don't think that like as sad it is as it is to say i don't think excuse me i don't think like a week after charlie hebdo happened i don't think that that was the, on the top of many people in the United States' mind because a, a snowstorm came along. No, it certainly wasn't. But in as much as there were a lot of people writing articles that said they shouldn't have been killed, but, and then several paragraphs about how it was a racist magazine, Yeah, I, I think that it might have been healthy to have seen, and we did, to be fair. There were plenty of people who were either native French language speakers or or people from France who explained the the political leanings and the um and the intention of these guys but i think it, it was still it was super disheartening was such must have been such a weird thing <clears throat> if you're a member of the mainstream media if you were for cnn to try to explain to americans right just just the notion of this really 
sort of popular mainstream cartooning magazine that everybody is paying attention to already over the past over the past decade or so it seems like every single mainstream news outlet or media company has launched a comic site as some kind of pet project Mm -hmm. and in, in a lot of cases it's just gone away um, or it's moved somewhere else. I mean, you know, I, I was at AOL with Engadget for three years and we had Comics Alliance while I was there. And while I was there, they closed it. I mean, granted, it popped up somewhere else, but this is very much an example of a big media co- conglomerate deciding that they had all these different verticals covered and now we're going to cover comics. So we're, we're you know, we're going to we're going to do the site. Um, what's happened, though, is a lot of those have gone away. Um, a lot of those don't really get a chance to play much of a role in the larger parent company. So we don't have a lot of direct dialogue between the two. Um, there's no direct line between the mainstream media and between comic journalists. No, Hero Complex is probably the closest. Yeah. Associated with LA Times. Yeah, uh, but, you know, I mean, is it... I, but I, again, I see your I point. Know, there's no route for that dialogue to be having, and I, I think that's why nobody's really having that conversation. It's kind of staggering to me, though, in in a in a in a time now where, um, what are there like seventy Marvel and DC movies coming out in the next, like ten years, something something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, and the and Marvel and DC books are certainly doing well, and and I think, relatively speaking, a lot of the a lot of the smaller presses are are doing relatively well. I mean, it's certainly far more mainstream than it was um, twenty twenty years ago, uh, but there there's we just we haven't found a way to make that transition we haven't found you know like it's the difference between um between writing about sports and writing about comics is that there's always been there's always been a pretty clear path there's always been a sports page in a newspaper but the comics page wasn't people writing about comics so there's always been a clear route uh for sports between sports coverage and mainstream media coverage and that just never really never really existed in comics and i think in the same way that like web comics from a multimedia standpoint haven't really developed as quickly as we wanted them to. I think that's the same case with comics journalism. I think also that there, I think in the classic era of film criticism with your like James Agees mm-hmm. and, and whatnot, they set a standard for people who are writers first that come in and want to take apart yeah. the language of film and really discuss what they're watching and really discuss the artistic merits of, of what they're watching from a journalistic from an from a writerly standpoint as opposed to from the standpoint of being a fan i'm glad that you brought up uh you brought up film criticism because um you know i think that we're seeing a lot of really academic a lot of really intellectual coverage of comics but i that's not going to be the first thing to cross over to the mainstream no well i don't know i mean you're more in tune with it but i think that mainstream media coverage in general is going to become more and more splintered to the point where that's not even going to matter anymore. Well, um, there's always going to be more mainstream outlets than others. And there's always going to be, and there's always going to be for for whatever reason, if it's, you know, whether it's something horrible, like the, um, like the shootings or whether it's, you know, something great, like fun home or somebody winning a Pulitzer or anything like that, or even, you know, even like, uh, another, Joss Whedon movie or something. There's always going to be a reason for these more mainstream outlets to cover comics. I, I guess, yeah, I guess what I'm saying, though, is it seems like as we go on in, in this world, uh, the desire to be part of that mainstream coverage 
is going to be less and less, not just in comics, just in general. I mean, there's so many like niche markets for if you're a music fan, you're not going to go to NBC first for your coverage about what's going on. No, but, but you know, those, uh, just because the larger ones, uh, you know, splinter and fragment and lose some of the audience share doesn't mean that some of the smaller ones aren't going to grow up and be a little more mainstream. I mean, yeah, that's you know, a good pitch, point. Pitchfork is a good example. Uh, Okay, it's not mainstream. It's not Rolling Stone, but it's pretty damn mainstream as far as music sites go. Sure. So, okay, so what? You know, if if comics continue continues on the trajectory that it has been over the past, you know, fifty years, um, are we going to see a self-contained, really mainstream comic site? My my concern that we won't, and this is just. I feel like I'm being way too hypercritical here, but uh, just as, as somebody who's been kind of taking a survey of the landscape is that it seems like in order to really um, pitch and launch a, this, this is not a blanket criticism, mind you, but in order, order to pinch and la- pitch and launch a successful um, site in a lot of cases with a larger uh, media company, you've got to, and, and this is not symptomatic of comics at all. This is just symptomatic of the media in general. But you've got to, you, you've got to play the lowest common denominator game, right? I mean, you've got you've got to do re- the really terrible listicles and those things, and 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 clickbait and things like that have to be the vast majority of coverage. So it just seems like everybody in this race to be the most popular. Not everybody. A lot of people in this race to be the most popular comic site have fallen victim to. To that, to the same thing that the vast majority of the media, uh, and you know, I've I've worked for sites of the, like this, and I've certainly been 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 guilty of this. Um, you know, we all have to we all have to pay the bills, but um, of of you know falling victim to to you know lowest common denominator of like hottest super heroin bikini. You you could fill in the rest. I, yeah, I know exactly musical. where you're you, going. You, yeah, you, you get the point. It's that it, that it seems like. <laughs> I don't know people. why I let you hang so long with that one. I know exactly <laughs> I know what you were saying. Fine. Uh, you, uh, but 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 it seems like in this race to to be to be number one, the the path that most people are 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 seeing and are taking. And again, this is not just comics. This is media in general. But the path that most people are taking is how can we get the most number of clicks with the least amount of work possible right um and i would like to see i you know i would like to see and i've always used um not film criticism but i've always used music criticism as um as kind of my barometer because that's what i grew you know i grew up reading like lester bangs and 60s cream and rolling stone things like that but i i would really love to see comics writing about comics that's as exciting and creative as the comics that they're covering. You know, I would like to see um, writing about comics uh, be be kind of an art form unto itself. Sure. Yeah, of course. I, well, and I think even more than that, because I think there are a few folks out there that that elevate the the writing. Um, I think Alex Papademus at Grantland is that how you say his name? <laughs> sure. Let's say yes. I think his stuff is absolutely great. I think uh, Douglas Wolk has written a lot of yeah. beautiful, beautiful things about comics. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. So <clears throat> we talked about 24. I mean, we didn't get heavy into 2014, but I, I think I don't know that there was a story last year. I know that uh, the beat 
our, our mutual friend Heidi McDonald likes to kind of round up what the big stories were. Sure. Uh, and I think this year the big story is Raina Telgemeier having such huge success with um, her new book, which uh, which doesn't even seem like news to me because I've been following Raina's career since for so long, since I was a retailer. And it just seems like a natural progression of somebody that's hugely talented with a huge audience. Um, sure. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I, I I didn't I didn't see 2014 necessarily as being a, a tipping point for Reina specifically because yeah I mean it's to me I don't know again in, in my do you see opinion, you see what I'm saying it's just yeah, like it seems like she's been hugely successful ever since like the first Babysitters Club book. yes I mean to me that that constitutes some note of success but I think well, and, that, and let's say deservedly so she's a great oh cartoonist. absolutely yeah 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 absolutely and smart smart God yeah I had I had this conversation with with Reina uh, we both both live in Astoria. Um, I had this conversation with her before she she had just I think she had just finished her final Babysitters Club book or was working on her final Babysitters Club book. And Smile uh, Smile had actually existed as a while for a while as uh, as mini comics. Yeah. And uh, she was like, I just I don't I I don't know if it's going to be successful. I don't know if anybody's going to want to publish it. And I was like, Come on! <laughs> like this is. Did you ever go to any of the events we had with Reina at my store? Probably. It was just mobs of children. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and not just children, mobs of everybody, but yeah. like it was immediately clear it was yeah. going to be a huge deal forever. To she, me. So I think yeah, I, I mean I, I don't I don't think that Raina's specific I don't think Raina, Raina's continued rise to success is, is necessarily a story in and of itself. I think it's part of a broader narrative, but I think it's part of a broader also gradually rising narrative. So I think she's she's very much in the same narrative as like you know, Jillian and Reiko Tamaki, for example, um, uh, you know, more broadly, uh, school, what Scholastic is doing, what First Second is doing, and just um, comics for younger readers, comics for for female readers, where those two things overlap. But 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 in as much as like nothing particularly tipped for Rain in 2014, because Smile was a, a massive, you know, was a New York Times bestseller, Drama was a New York Times bestseller. Um, but but the the larger growth of books for 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 kids and books for um, for you know or, or at least for for larger female readerships um, are, that's been a story for a long time. I don't know what I, I don't know what necessarily happened in 2014 except that those continued to be a success and nothing else really jumped out at anybody as being the main story of the year. No, uh, I mean on our end it was just continued. Uh, book challenges in libraries and school systems. Yeah, but in in terms of big stories in 2014, I don't know that there was one. It just seemed like uh, another year with a lot of comics, which is fine with me. I, I'm not a journalist, so there doesn't need to be a big headline in my life. Yeah. I, I I don't I don't know how specific that is to 2014. I think that's just well. I mean, well, look, okay, 2015. Nothing... There's a huge story. Uh, a bunch of cartoonists in France got murdered because they drew comics yeah. that people didn't like. That's huge, and uh, hopefully, the conversation about it doesn't end anytime soon because it's important. Yeah, but I think the vast majority of the time, it's you know, any any sort of cultural shift is going to be a gradual thing. This is something that we run into every single year. I mean, this is as, as somebody you know more as, as you know, Alex. Most of my um, income comes from running about tech, and um, you know, I think the past like three years i've i've 
I, I've seen stories about it being the year of the wearables. You know, it's not it's not the year of the wearables. I was just about um, to say I've seen you write more stuff about wearables in oh, the past well, eighteen months than yeah. <laughs> That that that's a that's a symptom of me very specifically having been assigned a wearables column for. Well, let's. Uh, when know. the Apple Watch comes out, is that going to be the tech story of the year? Yeah, here's. Is the it thing. going to be a seat change? Well, that's a different question. Okay. And that's a hard question to answer. Is it going to be a story of the year? Absolutely. It is the story of the year of the year going to be. Apple's success, Apple's watch massive success, or Apple's watch massive failure. I mean, either way, that's going to be the big story of the year. Right. Um, it is. It's. It's a really. I don't know. Maybe we could turn this back into comics. Maybe. Maybe. Well, we, could we can it. because the well, follow-up question is. You know, we can point to these like moments from year to year where like that really shifted. Two, two, three years ago, whenever it happened, the DC relaunch was yeah. a huge news item. Sure. It changed a lot of things about comics that year because it gave retailers a ton of money to invest in new products. I mean, it really changed a lot of things that we're still seeing the the shift of. Um, and so I guess when we talk about like what the big story is, like, did anything happen that really is going to like drastically change the conversation? Well, okay. I mean, like, here, here's what we're looking for. Like, again, let, let's use let's use Persepolis as as an example. And let of... let me stop you real quick and say yeah. this may sound like a frustrating and stupid conversation uh, at first, but I think <laughs> what we're talking about really is how how the press uh, yeah. processes comics in a larger sense because everybody wants that big story, and often the big story isn't just like a headline. Often the big story is how how things shift in a, in a drastic way. Well, the, okay. The, I mean, this plays this plays in perfectly to the conversation that we were having with uh, having about Reina and this. This I remember when when Persepolis came out when it you know when when it was um, you know there was the movie, but also more broadly, it was um, a story from the sort of person that most people who aren't familiar with comics didn't think that comic stories came from. Yes. Um, so we. The, the question is looking back on that did did that completely shift the narrative did what was it a sea change did it change things entirely and I think the answer to that question is um, yes and no more broadly no because change 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 for an industry this large is a very very gradual thing and I don't think that like again even if another uh, even if you know a second comic wins the Pulitzer, I mean, it's not going. It's not going to change the industry. It's going to be a huge news event for, for that year. But are we going to still have be having the same battles we, we've always had? Yeah, of course. That was a very abrupt conclusion to that oh, train of thought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I um, thought there was more coming. No, well, I, I agree. I just so we started this conversation by talking about 2014 and and just kind of a year in review. And I think what we've gradually come around to deciding is that trying to determine what the big story was for a year is maybe a uh, not necessarily a useful intellectual exercise. How's that? Well, no, it, it, it never is. I, I guess it's safe to say that 2014 was just another year that produced some good comics. I mean, ongoing, the big story is going to be, as you've mentioned, the, the continued expansion of the market into, the, um, into schools and into libraries and into youth hands outside of kind of the direct market and that's a good thing but it's also a dangerous thing in as much as it gives uh, a lot more meat for people to 
for would-be censors and for yeah. people to attack comics, um, particularly because the kind of comics that are expanding into that market, um, and this is a great thing, touch on a lot of subjects that uh, would-be censors love to get their meaty paws around, like homosexuality and sexuality in general. I just sort of wonder, um, you know, if we go five to ten years from now and the way that kids are reading comics is digitally, are the same battles going to be fought? Because, you know, when obviously, you know, uh, you know, people aren't, you know, for the most part, handing out hardcore pornography to kids at video stores or magazine stores, right? I mean, they would get in trouble if they if you handed even like a Playboy to a kid in a store, like somebody somewhere would be upset about it. And I'm just wondering, like, uh, you know, maybe this is a really silly thing to say, but as as there's more and more digital distribution and as comics just becomes another medium that's distributed digitally in a in a world that we live in where it's so easy for kids to access hardcore pornography, whether as many battles will be fought around the content of comics. You know, if if a kid finds something online, the parent can kind of generally shake their fist at the internet for being too full of yeah. filth. But, you know... It, well, that's my point, is that it's it's a lot easier to stop the bleeding if there's one direct source versus something like yeah. the internet. It's just, you know, no nobody at this point... I think everybody's just decided that, you, that as, as the great Tom Sharpling says, that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Right. There, so the internet is just kind of like a tide that nobody wants to fight. But if they can specifically go write a negative Amazon review or complain to a library uh, director about a book yeah. that they object to, they feel like maybe they can fight the fight. Um, I wonder, I wonder if, you know, I wonder from, from, some, from their standpoint, if it isn't easier to indoctrinate a child through a book, they pick up, you know, in the library versus just seeing some filth on the internet. Brian, I don't know like... that people that object to one of the biggest things leveled at, uh, at drama, for example, is that there's a gay character in it. Mm -hmm. I think that the people that object to that, are so small-minded that they're not even thinking that far ahead. I think you're giving them way too much credit. But ultimately, it comes down to a parent, if they don't want their kid reading something, they need to be more active in that kid's education. Um, sure. In general, whether it's the internet or whether it's a comic they got from their school library. But I've, I've, always, I've, I've always felt really the issue here is... It's not even the subject matter in and of itself, but it's the fact that it's drawn as a comic. You know, it's the fact that sure. it's something that is so accessible. It's the fact that it's something that, again, like back to this this silly conversation that we've been having for decades and decades, but the, the fact that because it's a comic, it's clearly for children, like that's the issue. Like, the, you know, the issue is that like, and I, and I think they would have, you know, as much problem with you know, like Alan Moore's Lost Girls is existing as they would with, with drama because because of the medium, because they're drawings. They're well, sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, you, you are not incorrect in any way. It's just that they're wrong. Y you know, comics have that immediacy and they have that, that power. Um, and that's what makes them important. It's not what makes them dangerous. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say, I would argue that they're, it's not that they're not dangerous. It it depends more on what you're afraid of. Well, sure. Well, <laughs> yeah. Brian, you're in a difficult position because I think you're trying to play 
devil's advocate for something that no, no, I'm just has a broader that... a, a broader meaning that you don't agree with. But yeah, yeah. you're you're We're right powerful. in every We're yes, powerful. You're correct in everything that you say. Um, you're also correct in something that we both agree on is that just because they're powerful doesn't mean they should be censored. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's um. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's hard. It's it's sir. It's hard. It's it's painful to straddle a fence. Um, yeah, well, you're not straddling a fence. I mean, you're definitely nothing you have said is is untrue. They are powerful. They're an immediate way to put something into somebody's brain, and they're a great delivery system for a story and a message and for uh, for whatever. But none of that ultimately changes the fact that they should be available. So you know. Um, I've got a you know eighteen month in, old in my arms at right now, and the first thing she's gonna read is gonna be a big stack of Raina Telgemeier books. Yeah. Um, no matter what the content is. Yeah, I, this is a much easier conversation for you to have. Like you know, it's it's that that's always a thing, right? That's the Larry Flint argument is that usually the First Amendment, uh, the people really battling for the First Amendment aren't the people you necessarily agree with. But in the case of Raina, it's like, oh yeah, no, but this is just a wonderful thing that everybody should read so it's just a lot Raina and and you know Jillian Tamaki and yeah. Allison Bechdel and any number of other people who've had uh significant library challenges Persepolis but also I, I'm a parent now you, she's not going to get free reign of the comic store uh it depends okay I mean no not free reign yeah. but I, I mean I certainly understand that as powerful and as important as and as immediate as comics can be they're certainly not going to uh, melt her brain. Yeah. Um, or they will, but in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they melted my brain in a good way. Well, debatable. And that was journalist Brian Heater. I hope you made it through the whole thing. I know we kind of went off the rails a couple time there, but I... Hope it was interesting. Um, if you want to learn more about the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, you can always check out our website at cbldf.org. If you want to support the CBLDF, that very same website will take you to our online donation center where you can join the CBLDF as a member or simply donate. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund relies on donations from listeners like yourself, and we certainly appreciate your support. This podcast was edited and produced by myself, Alex Cox, with music by the great Django Reinhardt. If you have any questions or comments for us or just want to give us a thumbs up, you can write us at info at cbldf.org. And if you want to give us a review on iTunes, that would be absolutely amazing. We definitely appreciate that as it adds a little bit more attention to our efforts here. Thank you very much. (laughs) 